So, Numbers 11, it's on page 147 of the Pew Bibles, the chair Bibles, I guess. <laughs> have pews. I'm going to read the, the whole chapter, so 35 verses. So Numbers chapter 11. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord And the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because the fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a handmill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the Jews settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people uh, myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me right now if I have found favour in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of the meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there And I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not um, what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. 
And he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth um, Hatava, because they, were, uh, because they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. Thank you very much, Ralph. Sometimes when I listen to, uh, when I'm reading the Bible, I go online to Bible Gateway and I listen to it just to help me. And you can pick different um, speakers. And my favourite choice is David Suchet. Uh, But Ralph, I would happily have you um, read the Bible to me. Um, Paul writes to the Philippians... Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have marvellously, wonderfully high ambitions for us. That you would have us shine like stars in the sky, uh, in our families, in our workplaces, as we live for your Son. Father, thank you that you don't just have high ambition, but you help us. You give us your Spirit. And we pray that he will be hard at work among us now, bringing uh, challenging words to life, giving us understanding, sight, where we would otherwise be blind. Thank you, Father, that you are more than able to achieve this among us this morning now. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We had an unfortunate incident um, at work this week. Uh, One of my colleagues, uh, when leaving the office, um, was a bit careless, pulling out onto a road on which drivers speed along, and the result was this. Um, 
young couple, small child, uh, climbed out of the car miraculously. Don't quite know how. No one was hurt. But the following day, I sent the photo around the business and I said, this happened yesterday. Um, learn the lesson. Be careful. Uh, Churchill wasn't saying anything new when he said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Because 2,000 years earlier, the Apostle Paul, writing to the early church in Corinth, looked back to the terrible things that we're thinking about this morning when grumbling people died at the hand of a destroying angel. And he wrote... These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. The us being just as much Christchurch Cambridge as Christchurch Corinth. So as we take a break from our excellent series, uh, Thinking About Culture, to dip into the book of Numbers uh, for a few weeks... We've got to say that the culture of 21st century Cambridge, uh, urban life here, is vastly different uh, to 1st century city life in Corinth, and even more so uh, to the nomadic lives in uh, the Near Eastern Desert sometime around 1300 BC. So what links them all? Well, it's the unchanging nature of man and the unchanging character of God. So there are lessons, warnings for us here as we seek to understand and reconcile the grumbling human heart with the patience and kindness of God. You probably don't know this, but when Steve and David and Rachel get together to put the preaching program uh, together... They aim to link uh, the tone of the Bible passage with the character of the speaker. So if it's something on joy, well, that's a shoo-in, isn't it? That chirpy, chappy Ben Cook. Uh, Grumpiness and grumbling. Look no further, Richard Newman. Uh, A while back, we um, played in church praise tennis. Got everyone to stand up, turn to your neighbour and just uh, take turns saying things that you had to thank God for. Um, and so, thank God for my job. Thank God for my... And you went backwards and forwards. And the winning... Uh, when you dried up, you were to sit down. The winning couple uh, were the ones that were going. And it was Patrick Cumming, I still remember. As I've been thinking about th- this week, I wonder if we played um, grumbling tennis. Which game would go on longer, do you think? Things to be thankful for, things that we grumble about. So as we go through this challenging chapter now, uh, three points to help us. Uh, Faith remembers we're a wilderness people. Faith is hard in the wilderness. True faith remembers God's promise and provision. And when we use the word faith here, we're talking about biblical faith. Because we've all got faith, haven't we? We all exercise faith. Faith is that thing which we put our trust in. What do you, what do you put your trust in? It could be your bank account. It could be relationships. It could be anything like me, your good looks. But biblical faith 
is to trust the God of the Bible. Take those last three letters, don't we? I-T-H. I trust him. And what that means for starters this morning is to accept the the events, the story uh, that Ralph read for us. However distant in distant in time and beyond our experience, however seemingly far-fetched and contrary to the rules of nature, well, these things actually happened. What we've got here is a reliable record of history. That's what it means to exercise biblical faith as we come to these words. So firstly then, Uh, Faith remembers we're a wilderness people. And to help us with context, to help us to get right in here, uh, we've got a little video that we're going to watch which I found helpful. The book of Numbers gets overlooked partly because it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travel log about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now... Through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping, dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into this story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them. Everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Thank you. These uh, little videos, The Bible Project, they are excellent. This one's about six minutes long. There's another one on numbers, uh, six minutes long. Couldn't decide which one to uh, show. So by all means, later on today, The Bible Project numbers um, to see how that uh, continues. And one of the things I found helpful about that was to 
be taught that the book of Numbers, it's called Numbers because of the census, the counting, but it's actually, um, the Hebrew name is In the Wilderness. So if you want to get your Bible and put that at the top, deface it, by all means you've got my permission, okay? In the Wilderness. And that's really helpful to me because it gives us context. This book, these happenings, these events are happening in the wilderness. So God has miraculously rescued his people from 400 years in slavery, of slavery in Egypt. He's taken them through the Red Sea onto Mount Sinai. He's demonstrated his presence with them, the cloud by day, fire by night, his kindness and provision in all sorts of ways as he leads them to the promised land. So here in the book of Numbers, we're sandwiched between two physical places and sandwiched between two different experiences. Darren was really helpful with his illustration last week, the two tables, the two separate uh, physical, uh, physical places. Uh, my diagram's probably less helpful. Let me take, you, take us through. So the two places, Egypt, where they were slaves, and Canaan, the promised land, where they were being led. So here, um, and the question for us, as we go through uh, the book of Numbers... Uh, this wilderness, is what's going on with the people and what's going on with God? How are they relating to each other? And this is a picture for us um, of what is true for all of us. You see, we were, uh, if we're followers of Jesus, we were once slaves to sin, but having been saved, we're brought out as he takes us to the new creation, but for now, we have wilderness years. So faith, uh, so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, know that you're a pilgrim, you're on a journey. Our forefathers in numbers had 40 years worth of real wilderness experience, whereas ours is metaphorical. I remember when um, my Lucy, um, she had six months in Kenya, um, a gap year experience, and I was talking to Colin one afternoon, one uh, morning after church, telling him how uh, she was finding it hard. And he said, well, it's like she's having a, a time of wilderness, isn't it? And that little comment was a really helpful thing to me. But it wasn't just true for her um, in that gap year. Peter describes in one of his letters that uh, Christians as aliens and strangers. And that's because we don't belong in this world. We belong in heaven, the new creation, the place where we're heading. So faith, trusting Jesus, is to remember that we are wilderness people. Second then, faith is hard in the wilderness, because life is hard in the wilderness. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships, and that's perhaps not surprising, because this is the stuff of refugee camps, living in tents, but continually breaking camp, trudging a few miles before setting up again. Children bored and under your feet, dust and grit in your hair and in your handkerchief, blazing hot days, freezing nights. But it was seen the straw that broke the camel's back was what was on 
or what wasn't on the menu. Verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Who's the rabble? Not quite clear, but it, it looks likely that it was uh, those that had joined them on the journey, those that had perhaps come out of Egypt and joined the Israelites on the journey. Either way, they set them off. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled down on the camp at night, the manna also came down. I don't know the whale score from this morning, um, but one of the songs the, the Welsh anthem is, it's uh, bread of heaven, isn't it? And the manna is that bread of heaven. Don't tell me the score, I'll watch it later. So the result of this hardship is complaint, grumbling, wailing with self-pity at their lot. Be careful what you wish for. God heard their complaint, didn't he? Verse 1 again. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. God sees and hears everything, even the secrets of our hearts, the quiet grumbling that goes on. Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Over the page, verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night, all the people, the pe- all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten omers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatavah because there they buried the people who had craved other food. You see, God gave them the meat all right, quail, birds, dead birds, in places up to six foot deep. But with this kindness, with this provision, well, for some, it would seem, came the death sentence. I imagine most of us uh, see our grumbling as harmless. It's just who we are as people, just what we do. But it would seem here there are times when God sees it worthy of the death penalty. Remember, biblical faith is to accept that these people really died in the desert for this reason. So we need to be clear about the offence of what's going on behind this grumbling. I think verse 5 
uh, 18 and 20 help us. So the Israelites wailing. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. The cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. I think they've got rose-tinted spectacles as they look back to their time of slavery. Verse 18. That the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Verse 20. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? So it would seem that their present circumstances were such that they were looking back from whence they'd came, time of slavery. I thought, oh, I'd rather go back there. It was better back then. What does that mean for us? Better off without you, your rescue God. Better off without Jesus. So we need to be careful. Remember these verses come to us uh, with warning. The grumbling at our dissatisfaction with the presenting circumstances of our lives... Uh, whether they are momentary or ongoing, whether something in the past has happened and you live with that sadness, that struggle uh, today, or maybe it's something on your plate uh, this morning, these past days, whether our grumbling is outspoken or silently rumbling away in our heads, in some way, it's an expression of what's going on in our hearts and our attitude to God, what we think of him. Because the default of the attitude of the human heart, the heart of sin, is to think that we can do a better job of running this world than God can. We can do a better job of running my life than he can. I love these two uh, books, the titles of these books, uh, if I were God, I'd make myself clearer. If I were God, I'd end all the pain. You see, that is what we do as people, isn't it? We make ourselves God. That is sin. And we look at the world, and we look at our lives, and we think, God, you're not quite up to the job, are you? But to reject God's rule, uh, what... God allows for our lives, however hard that may be at times, is to reject God himself, the source of all life. And in some ways to call down the death penalty on ourselves. Uh, for our forefathers here, for some of them, uh, death was immediate, uh, struck down by plague. Uh, for others of us, it's only likely to become apparent in that life which is to come. I know enough of us here this morning to know that many of us are going through it. Uh, so in this room there is loneliness, uh, ill health, uh, difficulties upset uh, in the home, uh, with partners, with children, uh, struggles, injustices in the workplace, uh, worries about all sorts of things, maybe food. Food is the big theme here, isn't it? So I wonder how you would complete the sentence if a book were 
uh, on your life, if it were a book on your life this morning, if I were God, I would change, stop, give. We want our hardships, those wilderness experiences, if you like, that make life hard, that make faith hard, causing us to doubt and question God's goodness. We want them over to be a thing of the past. Of course we do, but, but God allows them, doesn't he? Just as much as he allowed those, that hardship for our forefathers in the desert... You see, he could have taken them out of Egypt and led them straight to a six-star spa resort on the beach at Tel Aviv, but he doesn't. And just because we don't understand, I was talking to someone after the 9.30 service and talking about wilderness years being hard, and, and they said, not so much hard maybe, but just confusing. It can be confusing, God allowing things in our lives that we don't understand. But we need to remember that he is good. He is working out his plans and purposes. And our job is to trust him, however hard that may be at times. These verses have made me think this week how I pray for others. So, firstly, for a friend who has wandered from the truth. Um, Perhaps um, he's got what he wished for. But to anyone else looking at what's going on, they'd say, no, that's clearly not right. That's misguided. That's wrong. Well, will I pray that that very thing that um, he thinks is bringing purpose and satisfaction and joy, will I pray that it might become like maggot-infested meat in his mouth, that he will taste and smell the stench and so repent and turn back to Jesus before his wandering leaves him lost forever. That's a hard prayer to pray for someone, isn't it? That God would allow... uh, Well, it's not a hard prayer, it's a very loving prayer that the very thing that you may be doing, God would use it to bounce it back and, and see the ugliness in it. And secondly, for that friend who is really going through it, I've realized this week think about it my first instinct is to pray that God would bring an end to the difficulty uh, to uh, to bring healing to restore order to bring comfort and I think partly because selfishly I don't want them to lose their faith because when you're in a hard time you think well it's easy to give up on Jesus because he's not delivering yes it's right that Um, we pray those things, that difficulties will come to an end. But actually, I wonder whether my first prayer should be that God might use those struggles, those difficulties, to grow them, to grow their faith, so that they may know and love Jesus better for going through it. Uh, Whether it comes to an end, whether healing or comfort um, comes in this life, or maybe not. And as I've been looking at this, it may be you're here this morning, as we've gone through Numbers 11, you've, you've struggled with the idea of God's anger. You know, is that the God of the Old Testament who's, who's always angry? And if that is the case, I don't think I would, don't, would have anything to do with him, thanks. So I won't be here next Sunday morning. 
I'll um, do whatever. I used to struggle with the idea about the fear of God. You know, in Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Because I don't want to relate to God on the basis of fear. It just seems all wrong. But then I understood that we don't fear God because he is bad. He's like some malicious, capricious tyrant. You never know quite where you stand with. No, we fear God because he is good. The Bible word is holy. He is blindingly, beautifully, perfectly good. Someone was saying um, earlier that a friend of theirs loves kayaking. But as he kayaks in the sea, he recognizes the danger of the sea. But it doesn't stop him enjoying the experience in the canoe, in a kayak. So don't... If you struggle with the idea of God's anger, God being angry, know that it's not like our anger. It's a perfect anger. It's a good anger. It's an anger that if we properly understood it, we'd be there saying, go on, God. That is right. That is a right response to that injustice or whatever. So rather than pull away, determine to, no, I've got to understand this, this God more, his character, what he's like. So we've seen faith remembers that followers of Jesus are a wilderness people. We're away from home. We've seen that life, faith, hard in the wilderness. Finally then, we're to see that true faith uh, remembers God's promise and God's provision. True faith remembers God's promise and God's provision. I've realized this week that to my shame, I'm a terrible grumbler. And that is both um, understandable but unacceptable. It's understandable because I'm made in God's image. And as as I live in this world that he's made, I think, no, it's not right. I want it to be the perfect world that, that that I know it should be. Now, the idea that 39 people can embark on a journey to their promised land and end up perishing in the back of a lorry is just another reminder, painful reminder, that this world is not as it should be. So my grumbling is understandable that I'm not satisfied. But my grumbling is also unacceptable because rather than mourning over such things, all the things that's wrong with God's world and makes him grieve, I grumble about all the things that's wrong with my world. You know, what is that car doing parked on the pavement? That really irritates me. That bloke at work is not pulling his weight. These oranges from Waitrose, they're not very tasty. So many of my grumbles, they're just, just first world problems, aren't they? Richard, you've got to wake up and smell the coffee. So I need to remember, true faith remembers God's promise and his provision. 
So first, the promise. It was seen the Israelites here in Numbers 11 had lost sight of the land that God had promised, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that he was leading them to. Instead of looking forward to that land, full of hope and anticipation, the overwhelming difficulties of the present were causing them to look back to Egypt, to slavery of all things. What on earth are you doing looking back to being a slave? When I was a teenager, I had the privilege of um, going with the scouts on a skiing trip to Austria. I think, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know if there were planes then, but you know, we got a coach. And a 30-hour coach journey to Austria seemed like about 30 days. It was awful. But I could put up with it. Because of where we were headed, a week, playing in the snow like a kid, skiing. How exciting is that? So if you see yourself as a wilderness person this morning, someone who is following Jesus on your, your journey, how excited about you, how excited are you about glory, the new creation, seeing Jesus face to face? Can you say, as we've seen in small group, Paul says, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, glory, the new creation. And God's provision, well, of course, on every step of their journey, God had been miraculously providing for them, but it's as if they've become blind to that. And I wonder if that warning is here for us this morning, that we can fall into the same trap. It's said, isn't it, that whenever God acts in judgment, he acts in mercy at the same time. Well, we've seen lots of, about this judgment in this chapter, but his mercy and kindness throughout this, are here in this chapter, and throughout this journey in the wilderness. So you've got the rescue out of um, Egypt, uh, the Red Sea parting, uh, food, Water, law at Sinai. This is the best way to live, guys. Let me give my my law. Let me show you. His presence, the tabernacle right there. Um, And here in this chapter, we've had um, the manna, bread of heaven, the meat. He listened to Moses' prayer. He, He answered Moses' prayer. He gave them the spiritual help that he was needed, the 70 elders. He gave us his spirit, the prophesying. We mustn't be blind to God's provision, his mercies to us. And of course, it's at the cross of Jesus where judgment and mercy supremely meet. As the death sentence is passed... And judgment falls on innocent Jesus. Guilty people uh, like you and me, rebellious and grumbling about about lives not being as perfect and pain-free as we would choose, well, we go free. We go free to our promised land. So remember this morning... And this isn't trite. This is, I don't say this lightly. In Jesus, God has mercifully provided us with everything we need, both in life and in death. 
I've loved looking at this chapter this week. It's been a challenge. There's loads of bits that we haven't talked about. You know, Moses, is, um, is, he, is he grumbling, verses 10 to 15? Is he doubting God's provision, 21 to 22? Um, does he get away with it? What, what's going? There's loads here. So by all means, yeah, read it again this afternoon, this evening. Do battle with it. But the thing I'm most thankful for is the journey this chapter has taken me on this week. And I've called it from grumbling to gratitude. They're up on the screen. And I was thinking about an elderly couple in our church family who I'm very fond of. Um, I'm sure they've got lots going for them. Nice home, family. But at the same time, they're at a stage of life, an age where life is hard because bodies aren't as fit and strong and healthy as they once were. Getting more out of the NHS than I am. And we know, don't we, that as we, very easy as we get older and things begin to fall apart and slow down, that, that grumbling can become a sort of a natural consequence, result of that. But have I ever heard this couple grumble? What do I hear from their mouths but gratitude, joy, and praise of us, of their saviour? And I wonder if the secret is the closer we get to Jesus, the better we get to know him. And it's not an overnight thing, it's a lifetime's journey but the, the more his spirit transforms us into the likeness of Jesus, as the grumbling, this world, my life, isn't as I know it should be or want it to be, well, that ugliness is pushed out and replaced with a heart, with lips, eager to be thankful, even in the midst of hardship. Let's pray together. Father, you are so kind and generous to us. If we think back to this past week, and for some of us, many of us, our grumblings, well, if we were to properly understand your holiness your righteous anger. We deserve to be struck down. And yet you don't do that, Father. You have wonderfully, mercifully given us your Son to live that perfect life that we can never live, to die the death that we deserve, to raise him to heaven. And we are on that journey now to see him face to face. And Father, you give us your your spirit uh, to help us on this journey from grumbling to gratitude and you give us one another, the example of each other and Father, please in your kindness would you help us to be just that to each other. Encourage us in these things we pray. Uh, To Jesus' glory. Amen.